listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Just a few housekeeping things uh, as we prepare for Resurrection Sunday next Sunday. Um, If you are able and you really love God a lot, we would love for you to come to the 8 o'clock service. Uh, I know that I'm, I mean, kind of like, yeah, right, this is the 11 o'clock service. I know, but I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. If you really love God, come to 8 o'clock, okay? Uh, the reality is this. We will have about 24, 2,500 people come through our, our doors next week if, if kind of trends continue. And so the only way to make that happen is if we can fill up our 8 o'clock, which is normally about 250 people. If we can move 500 people from the 9.30 and the 11 o'clock, that would be ideal for us. So if you feel led... And, uh, and you're really spiritual, come to 8 o'clock service. Um, if you don't, here, here's what we're asked for you to do. Um, you're going to need to get here a few minutes early. Be patient. Um, and, and please don't save seats. Like I know, that, you know, you usually run in and you put 17 Bibles across. And it's not that we don't trust that your friends are going to come. Um, but here, here, the reality is our, our hospitality team, especially at the 9, 30, 11, are trying to fill every seat so that we uh, can utilize every seat in here. We're going to utilize the video venue. Video venue will be a live uh, praise and worship team, just like it over here, so it won't be like normal every week, and it should be live streaming, so everything I say here will be going over there at live. But So both venues will be utilized. That gets us to about 900 per service, and then we'll have you know, 900, 950. Uh, and so you might, some of us need to stand maybe during the service. I have to stand for three, so you can stand for one maybe, you know. So, uh, but we're excited. I mean, it's, it's, it's an exciting Sunday for us. Um, and the whole re- reality is, look, if you're a regular here, we want to provide space for those who might not normally come and might not normally be exposed to the gospel. And so uh, giving up our seat or coming to a different service for one week uh, is, is not a, a huge sacrifice for some of us because uh, we just want to have the opportunity to, uh, to proclaim the resurrected Christ to some folks. So we're excited. Please be in prayer for, for next weekend, maybe this week. Some, maybe skip lunch one day, go for a walk and pray, fast and pray just for, for God's word to be honored, for it to be received well, that in our church and others across the world, as Easter is celebrated, that folks would come to faith in Christ. That's what we're called to do, to go into the world, proclaim Christ and make disciples. And so uh, it's a great opportunity for us. So that's coming next week. All right. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, as we continue in our study, I only have three more Sundays in this gospel. It took us uh, a couple years to get through. Every generation, I think, has that one event that you remember where you were when it happened. You remember that moment when you heard about this. So for my grandparents' generation, it would have been Pearl Harbor. They, they remember that day of infamy. Um, for my parents' generation, it was probably the, the assassination of JFK or the, the first man walking on the moon, you know, one giant leap for mankind, that whole, that broadcast that everyone was watching. For my generation, it was probably when we got our first Nintendo, let's be honest, my generation. So. <laughs> but second to that would have been probably 9-11. I, I remember 
where I was when 9-11 happened. I was a school teacher, I was teaching PE. It was a Tuesday morning. I remember that because I hated Tuesdays because in Tuesdays was the only day where I had my planning period first and my lunch right afterwards. So I had to eat lunch at like 10 and then I had like seven classes. And so I hated Tuesdays, but that was the morning of 9-11 and I found myself in the school library, which the PE teacher never goes to the school library and I never did. But I was in the school library because that was the only TV and, and just glued as, as this whole thing was unfolding and just the wonder and just even as I was teaching all day long, I just kept going, what's going on? What's going on? There's planes in the air. What's going on? I remember where I was. We come to a text that this is the text, this is the remember where I was, not just for a certain group, for all of humanity. We come to a text today that, that this is the climax of the entire scripture, that the whole Old Testament looks forward to this, the whole New Testament looks back to this. And we're gonna see some who were there and we're gonna talk about what was going through their mind and how did they respond. But what I just wanna do really today is, is just walk through this text, this, this the climax of all the scripture, the greatest story ever told. In fact, if you're old enough, there was a movie in the 1960s called The Greatest Story Ever Told. And it was, you know, Hollywood's production of this. If, if you go back and watch it now, it's kind of funny. John Wayne is in it. He's the centurion. He's like, surely this was a son of God. I mean, it's, it's kind of comical uh, to watch it. But it is the greatest story ever told. And so I don't have a, if you're like, oh, what's Bill going to do with this? I don't have some new spin that you've never heard. I'm not going to try to be uber creative. And I just want to tell the story. Because it's not my story, in essence, to tell. It's, it's God's story. And so I just want to tell his story. And, and the hymn writer does say, this is my story. This is my song. It is our story to our point. But this, this is just the point of the Bible. So I'm going to tell it. And, and my prayer is that you would hear it. Because this is the story that changes everything. This is the story that, that changes lives. And that's what we're about, right? We're about changed lives. The, the goal of what we do is to see you go from darkness to light, to change lives. And so we're just gonna see how this story changes lives. We're gonna see folks that were there. And we'll ask the question. I, I do wanna zoom in and say, hey, remember, do you remember? What would they say? I remember this. This is what was there. But I just wanna walk through the text as we unpack Matthew 27. We're gonna look at verse 32 through 61. And we're going to see what, what the apostles and what Luke says is the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. We're going to see it unfold. We're going to see the very first prophecy of the Bible, that the seed of the woman, Christ, would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. We're going to see it today in this text. And if you remember, if you were here last week or you weren't, where we left off is Jesus has gone before Pontius Pilate. He has been declared innocent, but yet still handed over to be crucified he was beaten, he was mocked, he was whipped, and he was sent to his death. And that's where we pick up in verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. So part of the crucifixion uh, was that you would carry your own crossbeam, right? That was part of it, this 75-pound, 100-pound piece of wood, you were to carry your own cross. But because Jesus was so weak from, from the previous 24 hours, from being beaten, the trauma to his body, the blood loss, he is unable to physically carry his own cross. Somebody's got to take it. Romans aren't going to take it. So what do they do? You take his cross. 
They, they just grab a random passerby. And it happened to be named Simon, and he was from Cyrene, which is Northern Africa, modern-day Libya. History tells us there was actually a, a Jewish colony there. So he was probably, with the name Simon, Simeon, Hebrew, he was probably a pilgrim that was in Jerusalem. Why? Because it's Passover, because it's first fruits, because it's unleavened bread. And as a good Jew, he would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. So he's just randomly walking by, wrong place, wrong time, and they compelled him, i.e., they forced him. This is not, anyone out there want to carry the cross? Any volunteers? No, you, take it now, go. And so that's where he finds himself. And don't miss the irony. There was a man named Peter who said, I will never leave you. And he's gone. There's an, because that Simon's gone, God appoints another Simon to be with Jesus in his death. The irony is thick. Verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull in Latin, Calvaria, which we get our English word Calvary from. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but he, when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So they take him to this place that they obviously know, the place of the skull, and they crucify him. Now, history and tradition is filled with all different potential spots. The fourth century, a man named Constantine built a church, the church of the sepulcher. Here's a picture of it. Real fancy building. It's still there to this day. If you go to Israel, you'll probably be taken there because this is the presumed place where Jesus was crucified, right? Um, probably not the place, actually. Probably not the place. 1800s, a man named Gordon, uh, in his archaeological studies, he came across the work of others. He built upon the work of others. But the place that is called Gordon's Calvary is more likely the spot where Jesus was crucified. And this is why we think that, because it looks like a skull, Right? That, that's probably the real place of the skull. And here's the irony of this. If you go there today, and some of you have been there, uh, it's across from a bus stop. There's no cross. There's no fancy shrine. What do you think is more likely what God would do? Have some big fancy structure or a bus stop? My gut goes with the bus stop. Because every day, how many hundreds of people have to go and walk right by the very place that God himself was crucified? That's more, that's more God than, than a fancy building. Now, men build fancy buildings. This is why we sometimes shouldn't, tradition's fine, but tradition's sometimes wrong. And so we'll often say, you know, get our theology from some of our traditions, which is not always great. So we sing, not a bad song, but on a hill far away. Stood an old rugged cross. Oh, you sing that song. That's a great little song, right? Problem is, it's not, it wasn't far away. I mean, it's far away from us, but it wasn't far away from Jerusalem. It was right outside the city, and it probably wasn't a hill, right? They didn't put up a hill so you have the silhouette. Oh, look, the silhouette. That's no, probably not what it was because the Romans crucified people in public, they would put it in public spaces. They put it right down Abercorn if they were doing it. Why? Because they wanted you to see it because they wanted you to know this is what happens when you mess with Rome. And so Golgotha, Calvary's, uh, Gordon's Calvary, is, is just a, a common place on the side of a hill that would, there would have been a road and they would have crucified people there. So you walk by saying, don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with Rome. And that's where Jesus likely was. And they offered him, it said, wine with gall, which is basically a strong ibuprofen. This is the epidural, 
right? This is an anesthesiologist's medicine, and he refuses it. Why? Because he is about to face the wrath of his father. He's about to suffer for us, and he wants to do so, not masking it, facing it head on with his full faculties. So he refuses it. But I want us to think about, just for a moment, Simon the Cyrene. Simon the Cyrene. Good, faithful Jewish man on his pilgrimage to celebrate Passover, just like the Old Testament says. All right, minding his business and just out of a crowd, you take his cross. And so he has no choice in the matter, obviously. So he has to carry this 75 pound, which is, you know, for some of you, you're like, I squat 3,000 pounds. Great, that's you. Most of us, 75 pounds is, is probably, you know, like, oh, this is heavy. But here he is carrying this wood beam, following this mess of a man whose back, he's just staring at his back, shredded. He can see his exposed ribs, maybe his exposed kidneys, bleeding everywhere. Can't even walk, this guy. And put yourself in his shoes. What's he thinking? I'm glad I am not this guy. I wonder what he did. I wonder what he did. I wonder if he's thinking, Lord, when are you going to send us Messiah to deliver us from this Roman oppression? When are you going to do it, Lord? It's just a reminder of the oppression of Rome. When are you going to send Messiah? Could he have known, he couldn't have, that the very wood that he's carrying on his shoulders, that one he's following is the creator of the tree. Could he have known? That, that that mess of a man who's stumbling everywhere and bleeding everywhere and can barely walk is the one who upholds the universe with his right hand. Could he have known? Could he have known that the very reason he's even in Jerusalem is to celebrate the Passover and the Passover is being fulfilled in this one who is crawling up the road, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Could he have known? Could he have known that the one who he is carrying his cross is going to die for Simon? Did he know? I, scripture doesn't tell us what happened specifically to Simon the Cyrene afterwards. There's no verse, but there's some hints. Mark's gospel, when mentioning this passage, says Simon the Cyrene was coming in from the country, and he's the father, he's the daddy of Alexander and Rufus, why is that significant? Because apparently the early church knew not only Simon, but they knew Alexander and Rufus. Why? Because apparently this guy comes to faith in Christ and so do his boys, Alexander and Rufus. And Rufus is then mentioned in the book of Romans, chapter 16, when Paul says to the church there, I hear Rufus is there, he's a rock star. And that's significant because Mark writes his gospel, Mark's the earliest gospel, writes his gospel from where? From Rome. So Rufus and Mark are buddies. Mark mentions him. Why? Because the early church knows him because apparently these guys became well-known in the early church. Why? Because Simon the Cyrene carried the cross of Jesus and then it impacts and changed him and it changes his entire family, right? That's what the cross does. He was just a good Old Testament Jew doing his thing. He gets put in a situation where he would have never chosen it and it radically changes him and his family, which is the goal, is it not? I mean, as a family, and again, this is a reminder to us as parents, the goal is not to get your kids into Harvard. If that's your highest goal, 
Who cares if your kid goes to Harvard and he's a pagan? Who cares if she, she invents the newest whatever, but she doesn't know God? The goal is to point your kids to the Lord Jesus so that they are impacted by the same message that you are impacted by, right? That's the goal. But here's a guy drug into something he would never want to do, and it changes himself radically. And if you, can you imagine the early church? If you're like, hey, we get to have Simon the Cyrene at our community group tonight. Can you imagine hearing from this guy? Simon, do you remember that day? I remember it. I remember looking into the eyes of the Savior, seeing the sadness. I remember it. I remember seeing him bleed and suffer. I remember it. And this is a reminder, y'all, this is our story, so many of us. We're just living life, doing our thing, walking down the road, and then God grabs us, right? God grabs us. I wouldn't have chose this, but God uses this and it directs him towards the Savior. I don't know your story. Maybe you were brought up in a church and you remember I prayed to receive Jesus at six years old and I never, I hope that's your story. That's a great story. I grew up in the church and didn't know Christ, but when I was 22 years old, I was just doing my thing, living my life and God grabbed me because God sought me. I didn't seek God. I wasn't seeking after God, but he sought me. And this is what God does. He uses circumstances. He uses people to draw people to himself. So if you are in a place in life, maybe right now, where you're like, I, would not, I don't choose this. I don't want this. Understand, sometimes God uses things that we would never choose, carrying a cross, to draw you to himself, because that is what he does. And remember that God uses people, like Simon, to lead others, Rufus, Alexander, to come to faith. That is what he does. God seeks people. God changes the lives of people. So when they had crucified him, they divided his garments. And an early audience, they, they don't need a description of crucifixion. They know it all too well. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, but it was mastered by the Romans. Because they needed an execution tool that was severe and taught a lesson. And crucifixion was that. It was brutal. It was so brutal that if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified, right? Because you would, it was, it was, they would never do that to a citizen of Rome. This is why Paul is not crucified. He is beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. But it was brutal, and it often took days to die. It was supposed to be torturous, and so it involved the nailing uh, of the wrists, really in between the radius and the ulna, a spike so that your arm could hang on that spike and your other arm could hang on that spike and then one through the feet and through the heel so that your body was kind of contorted on the cross. And as you hung there, because of the the way and the angles you hung, your diaphragm and your upper pectoral muscles were paralyzed so that the only way to breathe would be to, to pull yourself up on the nails and stand up on the spike and get a breath and then go back down. And eventually, because of dehydration, because of weakness, you just couldn't lift yourself up anymore and you suffocated to death on the cross. Could be days, a week. And that's what's going on with Jesus as he fights for a breath. But below him, at his feet, they are casting lots for his clothes. They're rolling the dice. Who gets his Nikes? 
Oh, you do. Who gets his tunic? You get it. Who gets his belt? You get it. Why is that important? Because the prophets say that they cast lots for my garments. Psalm 22, verse 18. Just another prophecy helping us identify who Messiah would be. And there's many prophecies and people often say, well, of course Jesus fulfilled the prophecy. He knew what they were and so he could choose to ride a donkey and he could choose to ride this. And that is true that he did know the prophecies, but many of the prophecies fulfilled at the crucifixion of Christ had nothing to do with Jesus himself. Jesus is not on the cross looking down saying, hey guys, have you thought about casting lots for my clothes? Hint, hint. All right, there's so many prophecies. Jesus being portrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus being the one who portrayed him. All the, that, that really had nothing to do with him, but it was just God in his foreknowledge and his predetermined plan identifying his son so that you would be able to see who he is and know for certain this is the Messiah. So that is what's going on. And so they sat down and kept watch over him. Isn't it interesting? It struck me this week at Jesus's birth, there were shepherds keeping watch. At his death, there were soldiers keeping watch. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They would put whatever offense was yours over your head. And so in a mocking way, yet ironic, this is the King of the Jews, and he is. Yes, he is. And he was crucified with two robbers, two insurrectionists, probably Barabbas's partners in crime, one on his right, one on his left. Again, a fulfillment of the prophecy that he would be crucified with sinners, dying with sinners as he dies for sinners. He would be Isaiah 53, 12, numbered with his transgressors. And then comes the mocking. Those who passed by derided him. Greek word is blasphema. They blasphemed him. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Just walking by the street, mocking him. If you are the son of God, come down. And notice the phrasing, if you are the son of God, where have we heard that before? Chapter four, Satan. If you are the son of God, take these rocks and make it bread. If you are the son of God, dive off the temple. Angels of God will save you if you are. Even at the end, Satan has been trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross from the beginning. And even at the end, he stopped in Matthew chapter four in the garden of Gethsemane. Even here at the end, Jesus is being tempted to, to just step down and be like, nope, not worth it. Nope, not worth it. But yet he stays for the joy set before him. He endures the cross. He despises the shame. He does it. Chief priests, and they get involved mocking he saved others. He can't save himself. Isn't it interesting they recognize the fact that he did save others? They acknowledge it with their own statement. They saw the miracles. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Will they? No, because the stone which the builders rejected became the cornerstone. They saw miracles. They saw Lazarus raised from the dead. They still wouldn't believe him. He trusts in God. Let, him, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Again, just a fulfillment of, of Psalm 22. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. Just another fulfillment of so many of the prophecies. But it's interesting. In the case of huge, huge irony, they actually quote Psalm 22, verse eight, which says, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him. That's Psalm 22. And he does trust in God. And God doesn't deliver him. Right? See, here's the thing. If he comes down and saves himself, he can't save anyone. 
He can't save us. Because he stays on the cross, that's why I believe in him. Not because he came down, because he stayed. And even the robbers are getting involved. The robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same way. They're casting insults. They're blaspheming him, right? Can you imagine... With the, we often think about Christ and his love and what we're seeing. But have you ever thought about what the Father felt in this moment? Well, how does God the Father in this moment feel? Right? I mean, if you're a, a parent, you, you know the love for your kids, which is an imperfect love. When your kids suffer, how that wounds you. When, when they struggle, how you feel that. How much more the God of the universe who has had intimate oneness and fellowship with the eternal son in eternity past and he sees his own son on the cross. What does that do to the father's soul? How does he feel as he sees his own son suffer? Understand God the father loves God the son. He loves, don't think, oh, God must love us more than his son. No, he does not. He does not love you more than he loves his own son. That's not the point. He loves the son. But what this teaches us is this. This is what we should get out of this. How does the father feel about sin? He feels so severe about it that he would crush his own son to deal with it. It's, it's not, a, oh, well, how much God loves me? He does. But it's how severe is sin? Because we often in a church... Oh, it's just this. It's just a little white lie. It's just a little this. It's just a little this. It's not a little anything to the father. It's a little, I had to crush my son to deal with that. This is why the church is called to pursue holiness and not to play with sin because sin cost the savior his life. Sin cost the father his son. So it is not a little thing. I can tell you who remembers that day. The father remembers that day. He remembers crushing his own son. And so here's all these people mocking. The robbers are mocking. But here's what's interesting about these robbers. He's on the cross for six hours from nine to three. And it, initially, both robbers are, are saying to Jesus, you're the Christ, deliver yourself, deliver us, save us. But at some point in this six-hour period, one of, the, one of the thieves changes his tune. And Luke's gospel highlights it. He, he says to the other robber, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He goes from mocking to defending. I don't know why. Maybe it's he sees the forgiveness of Jesus towards others. Maybe it's the, the, the silence that as he's, as he's mocked. Maybe it's just his own mortality. He realizes I'm going to die. I don't know what happened. But I know this, the irony is the disciples don't defend Jesus. Pilate doesn't defend Jesus. The only guy defending Jesus is, is the thief saying, this guy's done nothing wrong. We're guilty. He's not. And he looks over at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me. Now, if I'm Jesus, and this guy's just spent three hours mocking me, and all of a sudden he changes his tune, I can tell you what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what you're talking about now, Willis, what you were talking about earlier. 
But the graciousness of our God, what does he say? Today, truly, you be with me in paradise. See, this is the beauty of the good news. This is why this is the greatest story because the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. That's what the hymn writer says. That it is never too late until it's too late. That this man, whoever he was, is today with the Lord Jesus in heaven, not because he lived a good life. He lived a horrendous life. He admits, I deserve the death penalty. He admits it. You can say, well, how does he get to go to heaven then? Because that moment he repents of his sin and he puts his faith in the one who was literally nailed to a cross next to him. And Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. This is the graciousness of our God. And if you're here this morning, you're thinking, I've done too much. I am too far gone. You are not too far gone. And this guy is proof of it. He's one of the few deathbed conversions in all the Bible, but he is in heaven, not because he is righteous, because Jesus is. And this is what our God does. He saves sinners. He saves sinners even at the last moment. He changes his tune from mocking to worship. That is our God, right? That is our God. He changes his life even at the end. Now stuff gets interesting. The sixth hour from the sixth hour, that's noon till three, the ninth hour, it gets dark. I mean, sun goes out. And, you know, there's been some explanation. People try to, well, it was a sandstorm. You know, sandstorm. People ain't going to hang out in a sandstorm. They're going to run. They're going to sandstorm, and they're going to run. It wasn't an eclipse, because an eclipse is over. I mean, I know you're not supposed to. And plus, if it was an eclipse, how'd they know? Because remember, if you look at an eclipse, you go blind. That's what they told us in elementary school. Don't look at the eclipse, you go blind. So if they looked at the eclipse, they'd all be blind. They wouldn't know what's going on. It wasn't an eclipse. Because it was three hours, right? No three-hour eclipse. There's some supernatural darkness over the land, probably very similar to the Exodus in Exodus in the ninth plague. Remember the ninth plague before the Passover? That was a darkness that could be felt. This idea of judgment that Amos and other prophets kind of highlight. And, and here's and, and it doesn't say why there's darkness, but here's why I think. And the, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur one of the seven feasts of Israel, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was the only time the entire year he was allowed to go in there. And he would offer a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice and put it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And he would do it one time a year. And he did it in complete darkness because in the Holy of Holies behind that veil, it was completely dark. Atonement was made in the dark. Jesus is on the cross, our atonement, and our atonement is being made in the dark. And I think that's why it becomes dark on top of the idea of judgment of sin, right? That he is dying for sinners in the dark. Um, but that, and that outer darkness is actually matched with his inner turmoil as well. Look what happens. About the ninth hour, that's three o'clock, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting, again, Psalm 22. But beyond that, he is, he is vocalizing what he is experiencing for the first time in eternity, and the last time, by the way, in eternity, where the Father has turned away. Where the Father has now, will not look upon him, will not, will not, 
have intimacy and oneness with him. Why? Because he has literally become sin for us. The sin of the world is upon him and the father cannot have fellowship. So for the first time he is abandoned. He's been abandoned by friends. He's been abandoned by family. But for the first time ever, he is abandoned by his own father. And he says, father or God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then John's gospel says uh, that he probably says afterwards, I thirst. Again, a fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm 22. And, and, it's, and it's clear that that's what they hear because they say, some of them are like, this man's calling Elijah. He's not calling Elijah. One of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him because he said, I thirst. And the prophecy in Psalm 69 says, I thirsted and they gave me sour wine. Again, he didn't tell them, give me some sour wine, please. But it's just another fulfillment of prophecy. And others are like, wait, let's see if Elijah's gonna come. Let's, let's, this is kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting what's going on here. And at that moment, Jesus cries out again with a loud voice. What does he cry out? John's gospel says, it is finished. Father, what you've sent me to do, I have done. It is accomplished. It is paid in full. And he yielded up his spirit. John's gospel says, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that is significant, y'all, that he yields up his spirit. No one here can say that. You will die one day unless Jesus returns and you don't get to decide when. You don't get to say, okay, I'm yielding up my spirit now. But he does, why? Because he said, no one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. And at this moment, Jesus lays it down and he breathes his last. And at that moment, some other crazy stuff starts to happen. Behold, Matthew's drawing you in. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The, the veil that is inside uh, the, the temple. Okay, so we've shown you this picture. We studied the temple back, when, or tabernacle back when we looked at Exodus. But in that big, that big tower is the holy place and then the holy of holies. And the holy place is there's a table with bread on it and there's a candlestick and there's a little, uh, lay, uh, little uh, a fire going always with incense going up. And only priests could go in there. And then there was a veil. And behind that veil was the Holy of Holies, where the high priest could go once a year on the Day of Atonement. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant, which by this time was probably gone. And it wasn't discovered until Indy found it in 1980. <laughs> so it's in D.C. to this day. We don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is, but that's, that's what was going on. And so the veil, and I found this online. This is for all you nerds out there. This is, somebody put the tabernacle in, temple in Minecraft. It's pretty phenomenal. <laughs> it was the best rendition I could find, actually. And, and all, the, all the 12-year-olds are like, hey, Minecraft. Yes, okay. But this is actually pretty accurate, that this, this room... Uh, where the, all these, uh, these, these three things are. And then there's this veil. And this veil, uh, Josephus told us, is, is at least 60 feet. This is 30 right here. So you can imagine double this. That's how big this veil is. And it's between four and five inches thick. Okay, because they would add on to it almost every year. So this is not something that you could just like, uh, t- you know, you're, you're the strong guy that tears the phone books. You ain't tearing this thing. Not to mention, it says specifically it was torn from top to bottom. Right, So you're going to tear it. Not only are you are not strong enough, but you got to get on a 60-foot ladder. You ain't doing it. It's top to bottom. Why? Because God tore it. And why did he tear it? Up to this point, there was all these barriers 
Gentiles can only come this far. Women can only come this far. Non-priests can only come this far. Only the high priest. It was always keep out, keep out, keep out, keep out, keep out. Until this point. And God says, no, no, no. Come in. Because you have a high priest who can sympathize with you. So now I can approach the holy place. Now I can enter into the holy place. Not because I'm holy, because Jesus has been offered as a substitutionary atonement. So the boundary is blown up. Now, of course, history tells us that the, the Jews re-sewed that thing up. Because why? Because man is really good about trying to put boundaries in between God and man, but God has removed boundaries. Why? Because there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And he has removed the boundaries and he has invited us in. But that's one thing that happens. The temple is, the, the, the veil is torn. Secondly, there was an earthquake. The earth shook and rocks were split and the tombs were open. So all these tombs are open. And here's what's really crazy. Then many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now this is one of those passages where I'm like, okay, give me some deets, Matthew. And he doesn't give any deets. Here's what it wasn't. It wasn't fear of the walking dead. It wasn't like, oh, zombies in Jerusalem. Woo, cut their heads off, right? It wasn't that. But apparently, after the resurrection of Christ, there's an earthquake, all these tombs are busted open. And after Jesus comes out of the grave, specific Old Testament saints get raised from the dead. Who? I got no clue. I mean, Jeremiah, maybe, I don't know. David, maybe it was your grandpa Joe. I don't know. But saints, Old Testament saints, get resurrected and are walking around and people have seen them. Now, did they go back to heaven with Jesus when he ascended? I don't know. Did they have to live an entire life like Lazarus again and die again? I don't know. I really, I can't tell you. Here's what I know. This is just a small picture of what ultimately this is, it's gonna happen. Is Jesus gonna be resurrected and what's gonna happen to us one day? We're gonna be resurrected. This is the movie trailer for the movie. What's the movie trailer do? It basically tells you what's gonna happen. And you gotta watch the whole movie. That's what this is. Resurrection. That's the point, and we'll come to that more next week. But that's all that's going on. And he takes you back to the cross. The centurion who were with him, keeping watch, saw the earthquake, saw what took place. Now, remember, this guy's seen crucifixions all day long. This guy, a crucifixion, nothing for him. He's seen hundreds of them. He's been parts of hundreds and maybe thousands of them. But something about this one's different. And they were filled with awe because of the earthquake, because of the darkness. And so he makes this statement. Truly, this was God's son. This is the son of God. The other gospels say this man was innocent. That is a, for a Roman to call this man the son of God, he is basically saying the only only one person in their culture was God's son, and that was Caesar Augustus. He was the divine son of God. So he is saying this man is on par with Caesar. This is a divinity. This is the son of God. It is a huge statement for him to make. Did he come to faith in Christ? We don't know. But here's what's interesting. In Matthew's gospel, which is the a Jewish gospel, it's written to the nation of Israel, the first people to worship Jesus after his birth are who? Pagan astrologers, magi. Who's the first person post-crucifixion to declare Jesus to be God? A Roman centurion, which should be great news for us who are Gentiles because God has invited us into what he is doing. So verse 55, quickly. There was also many women there looking on from a distance because they're the only ones that stayed with Jesus. Disciples are gonzo, but all the Marys are there. They're faithful, and we'll see them next week. Mary, the mother, his mother, Magdalene, mother of Joseph, and the mothers of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. He is, John's gospel says, a secret follower of Jesus. Well, his secret is out. 
he went and to Pilate, and Mark's gospel says he boldly asked for the body. He was one of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the, the guys that were, were there debating that, that night, to, and he was one of the dissenters. He's like, no, we should not do this. We should not do this. He was one of the few that was like, no, 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 no. That's where Joseph was. Now, it was secret at that point, but his secret is out of the bag, and he goes to Pilate and boldly asks for the body of Jesus, and Pilate says, yes, you can have it. And so he takes the body, wraps it in clean linen shroud, he lays it in his own family tomb, and he puts a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And the Marys are there and they see the spot. And that's important because we'll see, hear people say, well, Jesus didn't really resurrect. They just went to the wrong tomb. Well, Mary, the Marys knew where the tomb was. They weren't like, oh, I forget where it was. They knew where it was because he really did raise from the dead. Right? And then the next day, that is the day of preparation, that's Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how the imposter said that while he was alive, I will rise three days later. Isn't it amazing that the, the Pharisees understood what was going to happen and the disciples didn't? And so because they think, well, if he, if he said this and, and they come and steal the body, then we're in trouble. So they said, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. Does he, they don't really understand the apostles very well, do they? These are not likely guys to go on a mission impossible. I mean, they, the first, the Peter's denying Jesus to a little girl you think he's going to go get like ropes on and then like come in and like John Wick them and knock them out and then steal the body? And then what are they going to do with the body? And then run around and be like, oh, he's raised from the... No, these guys are cowards. They're hiding right now. They are hiding. But either way, all they're doing is setting up more witnesses to the truth of the resurrection is all they're doing. So these pilot says, you got soldiers, go make it as secure as they can. And so they do. They went and made the tomb secure. They even sealed it with a Roman seal, with a cord that would have been, if you break it, you're breaking the Roman seal, which means death for you. They did everything they could physically do to keep Jesus in the grave. Stay tuned for next week. But what I want us to think about is Joseph of Arimathea. Secret disciple, secret no more. And here's the thing that struck me as I was kind of reading through this this week. Joseph goes all in on Jesus and Jesus is dead. He doesn't have the resurrection yet, does he? But he's, he gives up everything, his reputation, probably his position on the Sanhedrin, on the council, financial loss, he's giving them his tomb. He is going all in on the Lord Jesus no matter what the cost. And he doesn't even have a resurrection yet. See, he gets it. He understands what it means to take up his cross, to deny himself and to follow. I wonder if we do. You know who else did, by the way? Nicodemus. John's gospel says Nicodemus was involved too. He gave 75 pounds of spices and stuff with Joseph. Nicodemus is the guy in John 3. He's in secret, like hiding at night because he doesn't want everyone to know. But by this time, he's, he's, his secret's out too. And he was one of the Sanhedrin. But they get it. See, here's, here's the big idea. The cross forces a decision, y'all. It just forces a decision. Follow me or don't. Take up your cross or don't. We have this easy believism Christian. Oh, I'll believe in Jesus and then go live the way I want to live. And he'll just forgive me when I, is that Christianity? Is that what he's calling you to? Or is he calling you to deny yourself, take up a cross, even if that means go to the cross and follow me. And, and Joseph gets it and he risks it all. And I love this. Joseph's out of a job, by the way, come Sunday. There are no need for priests no more. No need, no sacrifices. Joseph, you better, go, you better go to Lowe's nose and get you a job because you out. Because there's no reason to, to have a sacrifice anymore. 
because the Holy of Holies is open. Not because God's holiness is lessened or my holiness is increased because the substitute has been made for my sin. That's why God provided an appropriate sacrifice because all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has gone to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And as the hymn writer says, it's because my sin, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. So what do you do with the cross? As we kind of move to worship, I want you to think about, I want you to go back to the Father. What would the Father say to us this morning? God the Father would enter in and say, what? I think he would remind you, I killed my son for you. I killed my son for you. I think that's significant for us to remember, especially going into Holy Week. Read a story this week that I assume to be true um, about a man named John Griffith in the 30s. He lost his job during the Depression, so he took a job as a bridge operator for a railroad trussle. And his job would be, when the, when the boat would come, he'd turn the trestle this way so the boat could come through. And when the train would come, he would turn it that way so the train could go through. It was before, you know, all the technology that has all the, you know, computers and stuff. So there was a man-oriented job. He just had to listen for the train and listen for the boats. And one day, he took his only son, his eight-year-old son, Greg, to work with him and spent the day with him at work. And after a leisurely lunch together, he heard the sound of a distant train. And he, in a moment, panicked. He had to rush to get back up to the top. So he told his, his son, Greg, Greg, stay here. Do not move, Greg. Stay here until I come back. So he ran up to, uh, to change the, the, the trestle so that it would, the train could pass. And as he did normally, he looked out of the river, make sure it was clear, looked down to make sure the gears were clear. And to his horror, he saw that his son, Greg, had not listened to him. He tried to follow his dad up to the top and in doing so fell from the stairs and was lodged in the gears of the bridge. And with just minutes, moments to spare, he realized, I cannot run down and save my son because if I do, then everyone in the train dies. But if I do this, if I turn the gears, then my only son, my precious son, dies. And so in a moment, he makes the horrendous decision and he pulls a lever that would crush his son, but it would save the lives of everyone on that train, 400 plus individuals. And as the train's passing, he could see, the story says, into the windows and see the people just reading their paper, drinking their tea, checking their stopwatch, looking out at the pretty water, not knowing what had just happened. And I wonder if some of us, if we're honest this morning, we're just reading the paper, just dipping our tea, watching the clock, and God the Father is saying, don't you know I killed my son for you. Don't you know? I killed my son for you. So that you and I might become adopted sons and daughters of God. See, this is the love of God. Not that he didn't love the son, he did. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Don't miss the heart of the father for you and that he sacrificed his son for you. Don't be reading the paper and, look, and drinking your tea and missing the fact that God has provided the substitute so that you could draw near to him. Don't miss it. 
especially this week on Holy Week. Don't miss it. And I want us to think about that this week. And I want us to sit in that Passion Week this week. Why did God come? Because you were lost, but he sought you and he found you. So don't, don't be flippant with that. Let's, let's, let's rejoice in that, but also take it serious because our sin is serious. God had to punish his son for it. Let me pray and we'll worship and respond through singing uh, and just an opportunity to reflect on that grace and that love of God for us. Father, I'm grateful for your word that reminds us of the, the sobering day that changed everything. I pray that we wouldn't take it lightly. We mention it, we think about it sometimes, but you, you constantly are reminding, reminded of it as you see your son now seated at your right hand. Heaven sings of it. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. We will constantly go back to the day where the lamb of God took away the sin of the world and gave us hope and took us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And I just pray that we as a church would take that seriously and we would see the, the message is demanded to be spoken because it is the only hope for a lost world. So that you use us to do that. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys can stand as we sing.